DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co-authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Roots of the Faith, The Church Fathers to You, on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Mike. Thanks for having me back, Chris. Holy Orders, an incredible gift, not only to those who receive the sacrament itself, but it's a gift to the entire church, isn't it? It is, and it's something that was established by Jesus Christ when he celebrated the Last Supper. Uh, And he established that holy meal, that sacrament of his body and blood. And then he looked at, at his apostles and he told them, do this in memory of me. And he ordained them for dispensing the sacraments, for dispensing his grace in the life of the church. He gave them a special role. And they continued that role. We, we see that in the Acts of the Apostles. We see it in the letters they wrote. They had a, a fatherly place in the church that Jesus had established. We see it in the New Testament that already we find these offices. We find the office of bishop. You know, the terminology is there in the New Testament, in the Acts, and in the mm-hmm. Epistles. We find the office of bishop. We find the office of presbyter, what we call priest. Um, and the office of deacon, we find throughout the Acts and the Epistles. So this structure comes up very early on. It comes up in the New Testament period, and it appears as well in the earliest of the Church Fathers, that as the Church emerged, it's like it emerged in the form that it would have all through history, this structure of the laity who were led and cared for, tended by bishops, priests, and deacons. When we reflect on that moment when Christ really did pass on those keys, when he did pass on that authority of the priesthood, it was one of service. He modeled it for them immediately following that that moment. And the words that he used were words of service. You know, in in Paul, the words come out as ministry in the English translations, but it, it means a liturgical ministry because in ancient Israel, the word had a dual meaning as well. It meant cultic action. It meant what went on in the temple, the ritual actions performed in the temple, but it also had the connotations of a kind of slavery, mm-hmm. a kind of service. And so the priests were seen to be servants. They were seen to be servants of the people, and they did all of their ritual actions on behalf of the people whom they served. I talked about that structure, bishop, priest, and deacon, and the early Christians saw that as a continuation of the religion of Israel, of the Old Testament. It's the way it was fulfilled in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there was the order of high priest, priest, and Levite. That's how the temple service was carried out. There were ritual roles for the high priest, for the many priests, and then for the the greater number of Levites. The way that translated into action in the church was there was the bishop in the local church, and he was served 
by the priests and then by the greater number of deacons. The three different orders had certain roles in the administration of the church, but especially in the liturgy. And the earliest of the fathers testify to that as well. Many of the early documents of the church make this connection explicit. Even St. Clement of Rome was doing it in the first century, making the connection with the Old Testament priesthood and saying, this is the way we live this reality out today. In The Roots of the Faith, you bring to us the compelling story of Paul Mm -hmm. and his experience in Rome. I open the chapter with Paul in Rome, and he's, he's writing his letters to Corinth because there's this rebellious and fractious congregation out there in Corinth, and they're kind of full of themselves, and they cause all kinds of problems for their clergy. Well, we know for a fact that in the next generation, things didn't get much better mm-hmm. because what we have, probably from about the year 67, although some scholars think it's, it's as late as 97 A.D., We have this letter from one of St. Paul's disciples, St. Clement of Rome, and he's writing to that faraway congregation because they've done something extremely rebellious, and they've removed their priests from office and substituted their own candidates. And St. Clement is writing to tell them that this is something that Christians don't do. So we see that there's this reverence for the office of the priesthood, and also that there's a certain structure of authority that enables Clement, who's in Rome, to discipline and exhort a faraway parish that's over there in Corinth in the same way that his predecessor Paul had done from Rome. So what we find here is this idea of apostolic succession. What Paul had done writing from Rome, now Clement was doing writing from Rome and disciplining these faraway congregations. So the work of the apostles did not entirely cease with the apostles, but it was continued through the people that they have appointed as their successors. It's important, as you said, the three that have really stands out in the writings of the fathers, the roles of bishop, priest, deacon, Mm -hmm. that bishop being elected, brought forward through prayer and through that laying on of hands and that reception of the Spirit, their role in passing on that priesthood to those that would come forward with that charism. We see in the New Testament that this was necessary, that the apostles had to be the fixed point in the changing world. The buck had to stop somewhere. There had to be some kind of authority. Our Lord knows the way people work. He knows human nature, and he gave us a structure that serves us very well. And it was that way in the next generation. Again, we're, we're listening to St. Clement of Rome, and he's writing, I think, around 67 A.D., but certainly no later than 97 A.D. So he's the generation after the apostles, and we know from some of his successors that he had the teaching of the apostles, Peter and Paul, echoing in his own ears. He had listened to them. He had sat at their feet. He was their disciple. He says, our apostles, it's that beautiful intimacy of it, our Mm -hmm. apostles knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be contention over the office of bishop. That is why, having received complete foreknowledge, they appointed these persons. And afterward, they gave the offices a permanent character, permanent character, that if these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. So he's saying that this office of bishop is not going to vanish 
when one man dies, but there will be succession. There will always be succession, and that will show us what's reliable in the church, that fixed point. What's very interesting about that three-part structure that we, we've talked about, bishop, priest, and deacon, is that it appears so early. You know, we find the offices in the New Testament, and then we find them immediately after the New Testament in the writings of Clement of Rome, but especially of Ignatius of Antioch. You know, here's a man who also was likely a disciple of the apostles, and he's bishop of Antioch, and when he's an old man, he's traveling across Asia Minor. He's on his way to his death in Rome, and he writes these letters to the churches along the way, and everywhere he stops, he speaks to the church about matters of the church. He assumes so much already, as if this is all old hat. You know all of this. So he's not, he's not getting explicit and telling them so much what to believe or what to do, but he's exhorting them to remember what has always been done. This is what you're familiar with. I'm just reminding you of it. And the one thing that he's adamant about is that three-part office, the bishop, priest, and deacon. And he says it in so many poetic ways. He says that each local church has one Eucharist, for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup for union with his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop with the presbyters, the priests, and the deacons. In another place, he says, Be zealous to do all things in harmony with God, with the bishop presiding in the place of God, and the priests in the place of the council of the apostles, and the deacons, who are most dear to me, entrusted with the service of Jesus Christ. Everywhere he went, he assumed this structure would be in that church, bishop, priest, and deacon, because it was universal. It was universal. Wherever the church went, this is the form it took. There are certain things that tag us as a species, mm -hmm. as humans, so that we can identify others in our species wherever we go. You know, we're bipeds. We have these opposable thumbs and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Well, this is what made a church recognizable as Christian. This is what made a church recognizable as Catholic, even in the first century. And Ignatius uses that word Catholic. It has this structure. It looks like a Catholic church. It has a bishop. Under the bishop are the presbyters, the priests, and under the, the presbyters are the deacons who are dearest to Ignatius of Antioch. Again, he lived about 107 yes. A.D., so it's that generation just after the life of the apostles, and they knew the apostles. That's right, and you know, the testimony goes on from there, and it gets more beautiful as time goes on. There's a great man who lived in Alexandria in Egypt. He was a convert to the Christian faith. He had been a pagan and a philosopher. His name was Clement. Clement of Alexandria, we know him as today. And he ended up running the school there, the catechetical school in Alexandria, when he wanted to teach about the order in the church, the hierarchy of the church. He referred it to heaven itself. He has this beautiful passage where he says, in the church there is a gradation, a gradation of bishops, priests, and deacons, which is, I believe, an imitation of the glory of angels. You know, in St. Paul, we find in several passages that there are these gradations of angels. There is a heavenly hierarchy, a celestial hierarchy, that the angels have this order of love, even in heaven. Not so that one can lord it over another, but so that mm -hmm. one can serve another. So that whoever's higher up serves all of those who are beneath him. Mm -hmm. 
And Clement of Alexandria says that's the way the church works. It's this image of heaven itself. The image of the angels themselves is in the hierarchy of the church that we see reflected in bishop, priest, and deacon. There it is in so many of the earliest fathers of the church. When we get to Clement of Alexandria, we're just peeking into the 200s. Mm-hmm. So we're very much before the time of Constantine, before the time of the legalization of Christianity. You know, we're in the time of the most intense persecutions in some of the places where the church was. We'll return to Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. The Memorari. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly to thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, But in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts, and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. We now return to The Roots of the Faith with Mike Aquilina. Minute nature of the priestly character as exemplified by the writings of St. Clement of Rome. Yes, and... Augustine was really big on this. He wanted to make sure that everyone understood that holy orders conferred a priestly character that was permanent. It didn't go away. If a priest fell away from the faith or from the exercise of his priesthood, if he sinned grievously and was disciplined, he remained a priest. If he was reconciled eventually and restored to the ministry, he doesn't get holy orders again. Mm -hmm. He's just restored. And Augustine compares it, actually, to baptism. He says, Each is a sacrament and is given by a certain consecration, the one when a man is baptized, the other when he is ordained. And so in the Catholic Church, it is not permitted to repeat either. So this is something that you get once in a lifetime, and it stays with you forever. You know, when you die, (laughs) you go on to your judgment as a priest. It affects who you are. You're identified with Christ in a special way. You function sacramentally in the person of Christ. You offer the liturgy as another Christ. There's another beautiful passage from Augustine where he says, 
When Peter baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. When Judas baptizes, it is Christ who baptizes. So the sacrament itself does not depend on the virtue of mm -hmm. the, the priest. It does not depend on his intelligence or his gifts or whether he can preach a sermon that takes your breath away. Mm -hmm. It doesn't depend on any of those externals. It depends on this character that was given to him by Jesus Christ and that he should live up to and that he will be held accountable for, but the, the gift of Christ is not dependent on. The priest himself remains a priest, even if he sins against his priesthood. That's an awesome fact, and it should strike fear and awe into the hearts of those who have the gift of holy orders and in the hearts of those of us who are in their care. We should be praying for them all the time. If only we knew the gift that we receive in all the sacraments, I think we'd walk around in a state of, of awe and gratitude and holy fear all the time. You know, not a cringing fear, mm -hmm. but a kind of awe. St. John Chrysostom, again, one of the greatest preachers of all time, one of the most eloquent men of all time, he had that awe because he had received holy orders. And it seems from some of the things he wrote, although he never claimed this, but it seems that he probably received some extraordinary visions that had to do with the priestly character and of the priest's performance of the liturgy, that he was given a certain vision of what happens during the liturgy. And he saw that the priest's office is heavenly. And I quote some of these passages in my chapter on the priesthood. Chrysostom said, The office of the priesthood is exercised on earth, but it ranks among things that are heavenly, and with good reason. For it was neither a man, nor an angel, nor an archangel, nor any other created power, but the paraclete himself, the Holy Spirit himself, who established this ministry. If you consider what it is for a man clothed in flesh and blood to be able to approach that, that pure and blessed nature, you will easily understand to what a dignity the grace of the Holy Spirit has raised priests. Right. These are the men who walk among us today and celebrate the Mass on our behalf. Oh, God bless them all, and God give them the strength to persevere and to live up to that calling that they have because it is such an awesome dignity, and it must be intimidating. I think we can have a glimpse of just how awesome that is when we reflect on the nature of our own baptism. Because after we are baptized, our character changes. Yes. Now, the idea is that when anybody encounters us then, they're encountering a Christian. Yes. Now, sometimes when we may be at a store and we're not real happy with a teller that is checking us out and we our demeanor is nasty or cruel they're still encountering a christian yeah is that the christian that we want them to remember in the, in their mind wow the same thing with priesthood isn't it mike that even more so the burden of living out that life now many of us know priests who have sometimes tripped up in their behavior yeah. on the outside but it doesn't negate that the fact that we're still encountering not only a baptized christian but in persona Christi, a priest of the church. So many of the church fathers were priests, and they had a keen sense of the dignity 
and the responsibility of their office, and they wanted to live up to that. So many of the church fathers were bishops, and they also had a sense of responsibility to the priests who were in their care. And so we have from some of the fathers this great gift of the lectures that they gave to their priests, and their priests dutifully wrote them down. We have St. John Chrysostom's series of lectures on the priesthood, which are mystical in their vision of what the priesthood is and what it should be, but they're also very practical in how the priest should live out virtues in everyday life. We have St. Ambrose of Milan writing in Italy, in the, the Latin world, and he's addressing his priests, and he did a great series of lectures on the virtues, very, very practical lectures where he tried to guide them in just basic etiquette sometimes and tried to get them to have good manners, but also tried to get them to live the Christian virtues and, and the supernatural virtues. He told them there should be no haughty pride, no idle carelessness, no shameful motives, no inappropriate ambition. A plain simplicity of mind is all you need and it recommends itself quite sufficiently. When you're in office, you shouldn't be harsh and strict or too lenient. Mm. We shouldn't look like tyrants on the one hand or like lazy placeholders on the other. Mm. So he knew that the priest was called to virtue, and that virtue is that golden mean between two opposite vices. And Ambrose tried to show his priests the way to walk that golden mean. He used a lot of homey examples in his teaching, but he also set a good example himself by being a virtuous man and by being a good and prudent and just leader, by being a warm pastor. We know that because he was the man who converted Augustine to the mm -hmm. faith. Augustine had kept himself at a distance for so many years, but he was floored by this brilliant and accomplished man Ambrose had been governor of the most powerful province in the empire before he was named bishop. So he had a powerful secular career, and he was renowned for his brilliance. Well, Augustine found an equal, an intellectual equal in Ambrose, and yet he found a man who was so humble and so warm. He found the image of Jesus Christ looking back at him in this priest, in this bishop named Ambrose. And Augustine looked at that and said, I want a piece of that. So Augustine was baptized. And eventually, Augustine received holy orders. And then Augustine received the fullness of holy orders when he himself was named a bishop. And he became a bishop after the heart of Ambrose, his great mentor. He became a bishop after the heart of Jesus Christ. From Ambrose too, we also have a great appreciation of the importance of the great <laughs> discipline of celibacy. Yes, 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 yes. He was a great proponent of clerical celibacy, which was already an established fact in Milan. What's interesting is the way Ambrose treats it is that there he is in the middle of the fourth century, and he's already talking about celibacy as an ancient custom mm -hmm. and something that's universal in the West. Now he's saying, you're going to hear about married priests in the Eastern churches. Don't be scandalized by that because that's their custom. But this is our custom here. We have a celibate priesthood and that's the way it is here. And then he showed them practical ways to live celibacy and live purity and live chastity. From that kind of virtuous and strong practice of celibacy, he received an inner fortitude and a detachment from worldly things that really enabled him 
to face down emperors. And we've talked about this before. But over the course of his years as bishop, he had to face down one emperor after another and tell them a thing or two. Because here we had these Christian emperors who uh, were doing unchristian things. So he had to discipline Gratian and Valentinian and Theodosius, three emperors. Wow. And then he had, to, he had to discipline Valentinian's mother, Justina. It's one thing to go after an emperor. It's quite another to go after his mother. You're putting your, your, your life in peril. But he told them, the emperor is indeed with the church, not above the church. An important distinction. He's establishing this idea already of the empire being answerable to the church and the church being the judge of the morality of even the emperor. It's a very important precedent in the Western church and it's one that was good for the practice of the faith down through history because the emperors had to be held accountable. They could be disciplined by their bishops and they could be called to account publicly by their bishops. Now, when, when he did those things, he said that he fully expected to suffer what he called, and I love this quote, the priest's usual fate. Mm. He expected to be martyred for it. Now, he wasn't. What happened instead was that he won the hearts of those politicians. He may have saved their souls because he called them to account, and maybe they got to heaven because he dared to speak the truth to power, and power had the, the good sense and the humility to bow before the authority that Christ had established on earth. That's a beautiful thing, and it can be a lesson to so many people today, a lesson to politicians, especially Catholic politicians, but a lesson to bishops as well. Maybe it can encourage them and can give them the strength that they need to speak the truth to power even today. And to touch the hearts of those who are seeking. Yes. To affect one of the greatest conversion experiences recorded in, in Christian history, that of St. Augustine. Yes. By Ambrose's heroic life of virtue and living out that life. Now think what he accomplished by that. When we're talking about Ambrose, we're talking about kind of the first days of a Christian empire, but you know the sun was already kind of going down in the sky on the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. What established the foundations of civilization, enabling Western civilization to survive through the Dark Ages, the Arab invasions in some parts mm -hmm. of the West, and well into medieval times, what was the foundation of medieval civilization. It was the thought of St. Augustine as developed by St. Gregory the Great. Well, this would not have happened were it not for the pastoral warmth and the frankness and the courage and the intelligence and the fortitude and the availability of this great celibate man, this great humble man named Ambrose of Milan. Oh, St. Ambrose. Pray for us. Amen. <laughs> You've been listening to The Roots of the Faith, From the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will First, pray for our mission, 
And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Roots of the Faith, from the Church Fathers to You, with Mike Aquilina.